It's also meant to help us cultivate a hunger for God. And so in addition to giving up things, people sometimes take up things, uh, spiritual practices that will help them feel connected with the Lord so that when we come to Easter, we feel more the full weight. We celebrate with a fuller heart what Easter accomplished for us. We're Jesus' victory over death and sin and Satan on our behalf, our reconciliation to God made complete, redemption accomplished in those moments. And we feel it and rejoice in it even more. Now, but for some of you, you might think, I haven't done Lent this year because this whole last year was a Lent. Like we just, 2020 into 21 to the present, is we just gave up everything. You know, I sort of wish for Lent I could give up Zoom but then I couldn't do my job. Like, we're all ready to, you know, retire. <laughs> Zoom, I think. But Easter is coming, just a couple of weeks away. So in that spirit, thinking that it's the season of Lent, let's turn our attention, our heart, to God. Say, we want to genuinely, sincerely engage with you. We want to be liberated in the ways we need to be liberated from the powers of sin and death or darkness. And we want to be empowered by the Spirit to bear fruit for God, the fruit of love, joy, and peace, and being used by him in the world. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may my spoken words be faithful to the written word and lead us to the living word, our Lord Jesus. Please open our eyes to see him in all of his goodness and beauty and trustworthiness, that we would be drawn to you afresh, uh, freed from the things that keep us from knowing and loving and reflecting you in our life. Help us to hear the word of Scripture this morning and heed its call in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've heard this joke before. There was a surgeon, an architect, and a politician who got together, let's say for coffee one morning, and like people in those positions might do, they began to talk about which one of them was the greatest. Like, who had the oldest, most noble profession? And, of course, this, the surgeon says, well, think about it. My, my uh, occupation is like God himself, who in the Garden of Eden sliced open the man, pulled out his rib to make the woman. And then the architect says, well, hold on, hold on. Even before that, God was like an architect when it was nothing but chaos, and he creates this beautiful world for us to live in. It's just perfect for us and overcomes the chaos. And then the politician says, ah, but who created the chaos? Thanks. Appreciate that. You know, I think one of the reasons that joke strikes me as so funny, you know, I'm like totally in dad joke mode. You know, like I read dad jokes and they crack me up. You know, they have them on the stall wall at Barry, which is like this little newsletter that's in all the bathrooms and they always have a joke on them. And I, they just, cr- they crack me up. <laughs> it's like this, this one makes me laugh. In part because it feels just especially true in, in the last few years, political chaos. And if you think about it, there, it would be surprising not to feel that the world itself is in chaos. In some ways, because we have access to news, maybe more than we ever have, we see the political turmoil. We see the struggle between ethnicities and racial tension. Uh, we see the effects of the pandemic, not just in our own community, but around the world. And then we have our own individual uh, struggles, personal relationships, family situations, inner turmoil. It's understandable if you feel like life is chaotic. In addition to that, it's also a very noisy world, isn't it? 
where there's always something trying to seek your attention or your affection or your time, your loyalty, and your love. It makes sense that most people might feel overwhelmed by it, even irritable or erratic and exhausted. I say all that to say, you know, where are you this morning? And ask yourself this, where are you emotionally and spiritually? And then from that place, I want you to hear the word of God for the people of God from Isaiah 55, where God says through the prophet these words, which he says to us as well. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. The context of this passage is similar for many of the Old Testament prophets, is that the prophets are often speaking into chaotic times. And usually it's the case for either Israel or Judah, where they have turned away from God and have begun to worship idols. And idols, idol worship often is like a gateway sin to other sins. It leads to all kinds of injustice and violence and immorality in their community. And the result is turmoil, chaos everywhere. And then when they're in their distress, often they do not return to Yahweh or turn to him for help. They turn to substitutes, God substitutes for help. Maybe the Egyptians will help us to fight off our enemies, something like that. So they're typically worshiping wrong things, things that cannot do for them what only God can do for them. Things that cannot provide what they promise. And they're looking to the wrong things for help when they're in trouble. Things that ultimately cannot help them. And this sounds a little all too familiar for our own lives, doesn't it? But it's into that chaos where God could speak only a word of judgment upon them for what they've done. Instead, he speaks into that this invitation. And notice it's more than an invitation. It's like he's urging them, calling them to come back to him. To me, it's a remarkable sort of passage that these sort of things are even in the Bible. That the God we worship is like this, who would not be seeking to withhold blessing from us, but is calling us to himself, the very source of life and blessing. These sorts of things are echoed in the New Testament. When Jesus says, as the passage that Rob read earlier in John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts. Notice how that's the same way that Isaiah 55 begins. Come, everyone who thirsts. If anyone is thirst, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus takes up Yahweh's words as his own word and say, the way you come to God is by coming to me. And drink. He goes on to say, whoever believes in me, out of his heart flows rivers of living water. And that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit that God gives to the people who come to him. Or in John chapter 4, when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well and asks her for water. And then he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water. And I would give you a well of living water. And then she's like, 
well, sir, give me that water. In Matthew chapter 11, the other passage Rob read, Jesus echoes this, this idea again, this invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Or the way the New Revised Standard Version has this verse, it's all who labor and are carrying heavy burdens. I'll give you rest. The idols won't give you rest. The idols will give you chaos. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, not demanding. Idols demand. You ever, when you think of Jesus in your mind and heart, do you see him with that disposition, that gentle and lowly, wanting to help take the burden and give you rest? Let's walk through this passage, and maybe by kind of breaking it down line by line, it might get into our hearts a little bit more. And we might see that this is what we want to do. This is what God is calling you and me to this very moment, this morning, to come to him and let him help us, heal us, restore us, refresh us. See, in the very first line, I'm going to just propose a series of rhetorical questions. And you can, you can say the answer out loud at this point if you want to. We're not recording, you know. <laughs> we can just talk. In the beginning... Who is invited? Come, everyone. It implies that God has such a superabundance of grace, a superabundance of goodness and love, that there is enough for all of us who will come, and that there is enough for each of us who will come, no matter what our level of need is. There's plenty. But there is one qualification. What is that qualification? Everyone who thirst. He doesn't say, come everyone who is strong and wise and good. He says, no, come if you're thirsty. To be thirsty is not to have something, right? To be thirsty is to have nothing, to have a lack, to have a need. And he's saying, come of those of you who have a real sense of your need, of your emptiness, of your lack. And where are we invited to come, in this case, to the waters. As you may know, water is often used in the Bible as a symbol for life, and as we saw in this other passage, a symbol for the Holy Spirit. It's also, perhaps in this case, uh, the marketplace of antiquity, where ships come to port, and the various vendors set up their booths to sell to the people who are coming in. And in this marketplace of Vendors, people are telling you, seeking your attention, seeking your money, seeking your loyalty, uh, telling you you need what they have to offer. But like in modern markets, marketers don't always tell the truth, right? <laughs> the goal is to sell something. And so they need to make you feel that you need something that maybe you don't really need. And so, I mean, not that, you know, any of you marketing majors... Or, you know, we're like that. We don't have any college students here, I don't think. But, you know, <laughs> perhaps you might have been a marketing major at one point. But this is different. And what God is doing is different. You see the effects of uh, marketing or these other vendors, so to speak. Just they're, they're calling for our attention every day. Every advertisement on our phones that we encounter, every commercial that we encounter is saying, you know, you really need to look like this. You really need to have this, then you will be happy, then you will be cool, then you'll feel alive. You know, I, I joke about watching an NFL football game, and by the end of it, I feel like I really need a Ford F-150. 
that would really, that would be so cool. I, that, would, that would make me happy, you know. And why? Because I just saw a hundred truck commercials through the game. You ever notice that? A, they know who the audience is, right, for the most part. They're, they're, it's like, you need this for it. Then it's a Dodge Ram commercial. This is different, and I don't need that. What are we invited to do here where God's inviting us? He takes his place among the vendors saying, this is puddle water. This will not quench your thirst or satisfy. It's a lie what they're offering. I'm offering you to come here and to do what? To buy and eat. Let's talk about that for a second. He said, I want you to make your own this thing that I'm giving you, but not simply to possess it, but to ingest it so that it becomes a part of your very life. For good or ill, you know, whatever we eat or drink becomes part of us, right? And of course, there are times when we don't make good decisions. You know, it's sort of like when you think, you know, McDonald's sounds really good right now. This will be a great idea on the front end. But then afterwards, you're like, that was a bad idea. Why did I think that would be a good idea? You ever have that experience? Pick your restaurant, you know, or whatever the food is, the drink is. And we know that when we choose to eat what's good, we feel strong and healthy and alive. And it's the same for our souls. But what is provided here? What is God providing? What is he telling us to come by and eat? Wine and milk. Of course, these are symbolic for the thing that God is giving us. But what do they point to? It's like God is saying, I'm not just giving you something that might quench your thirst. What I give you will build you up and make you strong like milk does. What I want to give you will make you truly glad so that your heart can celebrate. This is what wine represents often in the Bible. God wants to give us something that will truly satisfy, that builds us up, makes us strong and that ultimately makes us joyful. But what is it? What is it God is offering? As Jesus himself says, come to me. He is offering us himself. Nothing less than the very best thing in the universe. God's not giving us a substitute or something less than himself. Often throughout the Bible, the way God blesses his people is by his presence coming to reside among them. In the Garden of Eden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and ultimately in Jesus, who is God with us. It's like he's saying, this is the thing you really need, my presence. In Psalm 1611, the text says that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. So if God is going to give us joy, he'd have to give us himself and not something else. He'd have to draw our attention, our affection to himself and not on some lesser thing. Like us, the people addressed in the passage originally have turned away from God. They've done this tragic thing that's just been repeated over and over again throughout human history up to the present moment, expecting something else to do for us, what only God can. The prophet Jeremiah says it this way. God speaking through Jeremiah to the people says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, that is the source of life, and hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's like God looks at this, at his people he loves, and there's a a sadness, a tragedy about it. He's saying, not only have they abandoned the very thing they need, me, the one who would give them life, 
They've made for themselves these sad little cisterns that can't hold any water. But they keep thinking they will. And they don't. The passage also tells us that God is the fountain of living water and the one that we need. As C.S. Lewis once said, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. And isn't so much of the chaos of our lives and our world the result of people trying to do exactly what this quote says can't happen? (laughs) We're all trying to find a happiness and a peace apart from God. Or we want to use God to get something else that we really value more than Him. And C.S. Lewis reminds us, it doesn't exist. God can't do that. Again, as St. Augustine said, you know, 1,500 years ago, his, his famous line at the beginning of his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That line has meant a lot to me throughout the years, in part because I so resonate with the idea of a restless heart. Do you? You kind of understand that phrase. What does a restless heart look like? One maybe that's always maybe seeking more, wanting more, or needing something else, unsatisfied. I think this has manifested itself in many ways throughout my own life. I can remember when I played sports, you know, the times that I was not the biggest or the strongest, but determined I would just work hard. And I was doing all kinds of drills at home by myself, you know, for baseball to just become the best player I could be, never satisfied and never feeling like I was good enough. Or in more recent times, my own educational journey, I think perhaps because I was a first generation college student, didn't know much about what that would be like, I felt a little bit behind my other classmates that maybe I wasn't as smart as some of them and I needed to just work harder. And so I did, always wanting to arrive, achieve, feeling like at peace with myself or like I was smart enough, good enough, or just enough to be useful to God, to be useful in the world. So after college and when I go to graduate school, I remember having the sense initially that when I finish this, I'm going to feel so good. I'm going to feel so much at peace. I will feel like I'm really something. I'm arrived. I've arrived. I'll have a master's degree from Wheaton. People will be impressed. They'll think I'm smart. You know, <laughs> I can, you know, I'll, I'll have peace. As soon as it was over, I was like looking for the next degree. It was not enough. <laughs> it was not enough to satisfy or to make me feel like I had arrived. So I do another graduate degree. It's pretty hard on me. I struggle through the whole thing. Uh, in writing my master's thesis, I've joked with some of my students, it's like, I know these long writing projects are hard. I think I had, you know, two breakdown in tears moments as I was working on, <laughs> you know, this master's thesis, thinking that when I finished, then I would be settled inside. Then I would feel happy and content, but I wasn't. And so I pursue more study, the PhD, then that's three and a half years of focused, intense study. And when it was over, I thought, I will feel like I've arrived, and it'll be peaceful, and it's okay. I don't need to do anything else. Would you believe or be surprised to know that that didn't come? (laughs) And then I thought, I need to publish. I got to get the book published. I got to get articles published. And then eventually, I got to the place, and maybe in some, I like to, I'm speaking as if I have arrived, which isn't true, but 
I'm more at the place where I realize that stuff never ends. That if I'm looking for a peace and a happiness apart from God, it's not there. You don't arrive. There's always more. There's always somebody else who's smarter, someone else who's done more, someone else more qualified. That kind of comparison just eats and kills your joy. And so I began to, it's only really in recent years that I've started to care you know, very little about that kind of stuff and started to care more about, I, I want to be a genuine Christian and not just look like one or have people think I'm one. It's not about the letters after one's name. I want to truly have a deep relationship with God that overflows with joy and love. I want to seek the wisdom of God and not just be thought of as smart. The heart is restless unless it rests in God, unless it rests in Christ. And God is called, I don't know what your restlessness might be. If I could have this job, if I could have this relationship or this set of circumstances, then I would feel at peace and happy and content. And it won't come because, as Lewis said, it's not there. God is calling each of us this morning, this moment, to come to him and find something better. Because here in the passage, he says, come here to buy wine and milk, what does it say next, without money, without price or without cost. Oh, so he's not like the other vendors who just want your money. You see, that's the thing about idols, is idols demand, but don't provide. They cannot give what they promise, and they'll always require some cost, some sacrifice on our part, whether it's money, power, position, relationships, circumstances, whatever. Idols will demand from us and then break our hearts. But God is here saying, I'm requiring nothing. All you need is thirst. And then God gives. God is the one who heals and liberates us from those things that destroy our lives and empowers us, satisfying us in our inward parts, making us glad in himself. He does that because we could never afford the price of what he's offering. In that sense, it's truly priceless. And the other thing is that the price has been paid on our behalf. That Jesus himself has secured these things for us, these blessings, secured redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, wholeness, renewal in the image of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's what we would deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. Because God knows that he is simply the best there is, and he is the source of life, and that without him we languish, he compels us in the next verse. That is to say, he doesn't just say, I am the source of life, take it or leave it, it's up to you. He pushes us. Notice he says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? It's like God is saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You're living for things that can't satisfy. You're longing for things that can't give peace. Or you're desiring things that will destroy you. And instead, he says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good, what is truly good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear. 
so that your soul may live. And that kind of line, that phrase, your soul may live, just sounds like life to me. Does it to you that this is what God is offering? I don't know that many people are that concerned about the condition of their soul in this life. We can sort of distract ourselves all the time and never have to think too much about it. But as a result, many people go through life with their soul kind of flattened and numb, or it's withering and desperate. And here God is saying, come to me and your soul will thrive, your soul will flourish, your soul will live. And what else does he say? When you come and eat what he's offering and delight in it, he will also make with you an everlasting covenant. That is to say, God will bind himself to you in permanent relationship so that what you get from God is steadfast, sure love. Steadfast, sure love. Isn't that also another just phrase that appeals and drips with life? (laughs) Where else do you get steadfast, sure love? Where else can we find it? Nowhere but from the source. So, If God wants to give us this kind of life, fresh and new, what should we do with it this morning? God is saying, I want your soul to live. I want you to know my steadfast, sure love. Not uncertain, not just some of the time, love. This passage isn't simply or isn't mainly a call to conversion for people who aren't in the people of God to come into the people of God. That might be implied. This is God speaking to his own people, therefore to us, saying, I want you to return to me. I want you, us, to come to him for daily life, for daily love. Let's do that together in these next moments and pray together. Gracious God, please help each one of us here to have the eyes of our heart opened so that we can discern and see what sort of idols we might be looking to do for us because they're making promises but ultimately they want to take from us and yet also see you on the other hand and all of your beauty and power and goodness so that we are drawn to you and we see Jesus as trustworthy believable worth pursuing and giving our lives to and for Would you please refresh every person in here this morning in the ways that they need? You are the one who not only carried our sins, but also our griefs and sorrows. Would you carry them still, carry them now, as we cast our cares upon you in Jesus' name?